0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit rothcheese.com. This week on Meetin 3, we're exploring the culinary wonders of urban New Jersey with a tour through Newark. We speak to Frank Mentisana at Phillips Academy Public Charter School.
0: This idea of family style and made-from-scratch lunches continues to be a bit of an anomaly in the city.
1: We also hear from Gil Speyer from All Points West Distillery.
2: Newark used to have an incredibly rich beverage alcohol history.
1: And we'll tour Aero Farms, the world's largest indoor vertical farm. We're growing using 390 times more productivity than field farming and 95% less water. Tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network to be amazed at the wonders of Newark. That's meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Dan Petrosky. We'll talk to Dan about the future of cab, Larkmead, wine, and a lot more. Dan brought in a Larkmead, so we'll taste that for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. All right, Brooklyn born, Dan Petrosky made his way uptown to Columbia University. Smart guy, right? Played a little football, headed down to NYU Biz School before moving into marketing, finance, and advertising at Time Inc. and Sports Illustrated. His love of wine through business, travel magazines, and a college friend with connections got Dan over to Sicily. Dan came back to the States, unemployed, uh, made his way to Cali (laughs) to follow his passion, and the rest fermented into a career in wine. Dan is the winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards in uh, Calistoga and owns Massican Winery in California. Dan was the 2017 Winemaker of the Year from the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome to the Great Nation, Dan. <laughs> thank you, Sam. Um, Welcome back in a way. We, we sat with you before, but um, this is a full one-on-one, so thank you for coming in.
3: I appreciate it. And uh, you're... Little summary of my history is uh quite fa- quite now. flat quite flattering, yeah, and I don't yeah. think there's anything else to talk about
2: <laughs> yeah, good night everyone um there is though Dan, and I want you to uh sort of take us further um you know, I gave everyone a sense you're a New York boy, educated here, uh worked in business, but there was a point after you were successful in business that You kind of got this mini obsession with wine, and you were looking forward towards it. And a friend of yours, I think in the business, knew wine people in Sicily and suggested that to you During another job offer so let's talk about Dan from that point on and get me to today sure certainly Um,
3: was actually you know having a friend in Sicily is (laughs) it's a pretty good thing Um, you got he's especially when they have your back but the way it actually happened was he did not suggest it to me he uh, advised me against it So I I had I'd hit my um, I, I always jokingly say I hit my midlife crisis and you know at Time Inc. I was there for ten years and I was 33 years old. I had a conversation with my mother about the future and about working and I'd be working for another 40 years, which was longer than I had lived at that point. So <laughs> um, I had this opportunity to go work at the Wall Street Journal and and um, I had visited Sicily with my business school classmate Massimo Calafiore, and we. I fell in love with the culture, the people, the hospitality, and the generosity. Um, And so when I was making a major career change, leaving a company that I thought I would never leave, Time, Inc., to go to the Wall Street Journal, I said, is that a big enough change? And uh, I I woke up one morning and said, I'm going to move to Italy. And I called up Massimo, and he literally said, don't do it. (laughs) He he told me to... uh, Go work at the wall street journal um but i, I pressed that, and, that was the easy move though. yeah that was the easy move um and i pressed and he made some phone calls and uh and he called me back and he said uh you're good to go you know don't embarrass me and uh and and that was that was literally it and uh, that was in february of 2005 and i had moved in june 1st 2005.
2: so you get to sicily and you jump in and focus on wine. Tell me what happens when you get there and what you do.
3: Yeah, it was it was very, it was very nebulous. It was a, it wasn't really. I was I didn't have a visa. I, I lived. <laughs> I, mean, I don't know if they're gonna come back and get me now, but I lived there in Europe illegally, technically for a year. Um, I was working with a family who owned a winery called Valle del Cate. It was a split into two, a partnership between two families. One of the families managed the vineyards, and I spent uh, about three days a week going to the vineyards with uh, with that family. And I was really, at the time, I was really learning, trying to learn the language a little bit, but then it's also learning Sicilian at that point, not <laughs> even Italian. Um, and, and really just experienced my, uh, what it was to make wine. Um, as you had hinted in the in the summary in the opening, I fell in love with wine as a wine drinker. I had zero idea of how wine was made. So for me to immerse myself um, with a family that, owned a vineyard and made wine, it was an opportunity for me to kind of have a little bit more understanding. And, you know, my background is in sales and marketing, and that's storytelling. And if I can tell stories slightly better because I'm familiar with how those wines are made, I thought all the brand management jobs in the world for an Italian winery were going to be available to, to me. But when I got back to New York City a year later, they weren't. And that's what, that's what propelled me to so California. So clear
2: something up for me. So when you were in Sicily, did you take everything in, you know, the cellar, the fields... Um, or where you're just plotting, sort of, on the brand management side, or
3: or a little of everything. It was it was a little bit of everything. Um, I spent more time on the vineyard side because I was the, the what with a family that I was uh, bumming around with. Uh, that was their role and responsibility. Uh, <laughs> the winery was run by the other family, and they actually thought I was a bit of a spy. Uh, <laughs> That's um, funny. And they, you know, and they 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 were. It was very interesting. Every couple of years, they swatched they swapped. Uh, who was the managing partner of the winery and so forth and so on. And uh, it was a time in which um, the family I worked with was in the field. So for me, what I always say, my my stock answer to that question usually is, I didn't learn how to make wine in Italy. I learned how to appreciate it. Um, The old world, as we know, has a different culture of wine consumption than we do here in America.
2: Pedestal, right?
3: Yeah, here in America, we're on a pedestal. In the old world, they're on the table. And, you know, wine is just to to steal... um, richard betts's uh uh, famous phrase wine is a condiment and i think that is uh, that is an old world philosophy and it's something that we in america are growing and evolving to we're not there yet
2: right um all right so you said you come back from sicily um you thought maybe you'd take all this experience going to brand management didn't happen so take me to the path i think you went to california and let's get to the current from there
3: sure no i so i the second half of my stay in in sicily i started reaching out to friends of friends who may or may not have known anyone in the wine industry whether it be on the business side or in the winemaking side and through the the original connection at the wall street journal i met uh, a a gentleman in california a young kid who started a winery with two of his friends called anthill farms his name was webster marquez And Webb, you know, uh, expressed the same and delivered the same amount of hospitality and generosity with me as the Sicilians did. And he he basically welcomed me into his home, put me up for a week in California and said, introduced me to his friends and said, let's, you know, you want to work out here? We'll figure it out. And through him and his connections, I was able to, and his business partner at Anhill Farms, um, David Lowe, introduced me to Andy Smith. And um, since I wasn't finding the job that I wanted on the marketing and sales side, the, the next opportunity for me was to continue this stage, continue this kind of winemaking journey and go from the vineyards and then straight into the cellars. And I ended, I ended up in Dumal in 2006. Um, through the great, connection, great
2: Chardonnay and Pinot maker, right?
3: Oh yeah, Andy. Andy was genius. I mean, he came up before the you know the Pinot movement in the mid aughts, and he was in the, the late nineties, um, you know, and early two thousands. He, he worked with Ted Lemon at Literai when um, Ted was based in Napa, and Andy had this consulting project called Arkmead, and he was uh, he was kind of crafting Cabernets in Napa, and and he was an owner, partner, uh, winemaker at Dumall. And he was just, you know, he was, he was, in my opinion, this, this God, because he had his hands in, you know, multiple grape varieties and he did every one of them. Well, uh, one of the most talented, respected winemakers of his time. And I had this opportunity to work harvest for him and spent about six months with him. And, but it it ended up being a lot longer as he, uh, at the end of harvest, he offered me a job.
2: So you took the job at Larkmead and that was what year?
3: And that was, uh, I remember exactly the day he offered me the job on Halloween 2006. Um, it was still needed, the details needed to be worked out and the timing needed to be worked out. But effectively, January 2007, I was uh, full-time employed as a cellar master at Larkmead.
2: And now, 2019. <laughs> it's are, a long time. <laughs> it is, well, it is and it is. You are now the head winemaker. Andy recently left, right? He was there for a good part of your tenure. Yeah.
3: Yeah, no, Andy, Andy mentored me all the way through um, the, the late, late 2000s, uh, promoted me all the way through from assistant to associate to winemaker at Larkmead in 2012. Um, Andy went to focus on Dumont in 2013 and, and, um, and, and kind of uh, left me with all his uh, good graces and knowledge.
2: Right. Um, so that's, that's where Dan is right now. He's been at Larkmead for a while. Um, for a minute or two later on, we'll talk about a, a side project of his Massacan. But I want to talk about Cabernet. I want to talk about Lark meat. Um There's a lot there. Um, I got a chance to listen to you, I think it was about a year ago. I think we were all down at Blue Hill. And it was Raj Parr, Steve Mathiasen, um, John think, Bonet, and uh, Jason, Wagner. Jason Wagner from Union Square. And the talk was about The Future of Cabernet Sauvignon, and it was kind of an interesting crew, and I wanted to talk to you about that because I guess my first question is, why are we questioning the future of Cabernet Sauvignon? I mean, why, why, why is that a topic?
3: Um, I agree 100%. But I think when you have a monarchy and, and the king of all grapes is Cabernet, um, you always have to question uh, the royalty and, and, and the regalness of it and whether there's, it's going to continue its path that way. Um, and I wanted to ha- start having intellectual conversations about, um, about wine in general and Cabernet Sauvignon because it's near and dear to my heart. But I wanted to do that because it, it ties back to Larkmead's history in the 1880s when a woman named Lily Hitzcock Coit founded Larkmead. Um, she, a book was written about her and her mother's experiences in the Napa Valley called The Salon at Larkmead. And they would. And Lily had you know, kind of uh, cut her teeth in Paris and during the Civil War and came back to the to United States into a rural northern, Napa, northern Calistoga, northern Napa Valley, northern California, excuse me. Um, and she would invite artists and writers over and have these intellectual salon-like uh, evenings in Napa Valley. Um, so I wanted to bring that back, almost kind of like a mini TED Talks conversation. And and we've, cre- we've created, a it's, it's created quite a buzz. I mean, whenever I host these events in, in, at Larkmead, we do about three of them a year. We we have a wait list. I mean, we only see about 20, 25 people, plus panelists and moderator, and uh, so about 30 people in the room. And we have a wait list for people to get in because it's uh, it's... People want to have this conversation, and and I think it's important as we see the change in consumption patterns, as we see the change in hospitality, as we see the development of the Napa Valley commercially. We are all thinking about why we're there, and that why we're there is Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, it wasn't that way fifty years ago. Cabernet Sauvignon wasn't that grape that brought us there. It was just the idea of wine. Um, but today it's Cabernet Sauvignon. It's the King. It always will be the King. Um, as long as it has a future and we're just going through the intellectual exercise of, of trying to figure out what that, you know, if, how does that future change?
2: What are some of the concerns? I mean, what, what are issues? I mean, Uh, I, 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 10 Some, things are blasting in my head yeah yeah and then you know w- what are the things that come up frequently and concerns no one
3: of the when we sat down in uh, in new york city a year ago with a, a not only a star-studded panel it was a star-studded room i couldn't believe yeah, who came crazy in, who was there who came into the room that day um you know all um all good people who've supported napa valley over the years who were, may not be supporting it today but still agree that when they cut their teeth and in, in, in wine they cut their teeth and you know wines like Napa Valley Cabernet or Bordeaux and um so I think what we're seeing today is you know what some of these topics have been has been style have been price point are we you know stylistically so moving away
2: from stylistically it's been a very big unctuous high alcohol right fair fair I mean it's price that's... it's always been expensive compared to other cab fair
3: um you know I think those two you know I can I can sit here and tell you why the style is the style, why the price is the price. Um, But at the end of the day, it's like it all works if wines sell and wines we've noticed. And from, you know, from the outside looking in from Napa Valley that New York City is a hard place to sell wine these days because there's so much demand and diverse for diversity. There's so much demand for uh, tradition and history and heritage, and at the same time, there's a lot of demand on price. Not everyone in New York City is, you know, fine dining, eating at fine dining restaurants or shopping at uh, um, fine re- fine retail shops. Right. Um, there's a, a mass consumption here, and so we're we're looking at it and asking ourselves the question: it's like, what are we, are we able to think about the future are we just a niche in the in the grand scheme of things that has a massive brand awareness or you know i think if you are a niche if you're a small producer and there is this massive napa valley brand awareness you're you're going to ride that wave but at the same time you know you you see one less bottle sold each day and you ask yourself people why aren't we selling as much wine as we sold yesterday and i think that question is and and I, i don't I'm not saying that's what's going on in Napa Valley today. I think we're selling more wine than ever. Uh, Direct-to-consumer purchasing in the Napa Valley
2: has been increasing every year. But there are some changes. So what are the changes we're witnessing? Yes. I I mean, I think you alluded to, and I think... One of the big things is a change in the type of wine style. Sure. Restraint, sure. I and, mean, is that a major yeah. thing where Napa is go, where a Cab is going in Napa at least? Yes, of course. I, so uh, tell people what restraint is in a Cabernet Sauvignon. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know what? What's the traditional thing, and you know what what restraint means? I mean, three yeah. things come to mind to me, but I want to hear from.
3: I you. mean, no, I mean, I. Uh, I I love it because, you know, I think about, I think about the golden age of Napa and when we started our, uh, kind of the Napa Valley started its peak rise, uh, peak Cabernet moment in the mid nineties, all the way up to the 2010s, we kind of, we came after, we have a lot of sunshine in, in Napa Valley so we can ripen fruit. I mean, the one thing Andy Smith told me when I arrived was everything ripens here. So we had the opportunity to make the fruit forward. Structured wines, powerful wines that uh, that no struggle towards that no struggle that that Bordeaux struggles to make right. and uh, whether you know the, the Bordeaux is defined by its uh, its its regionality and its weather patterns, you know we aren't defi- we're defined by our weather patterns in a completely different scale. And also, you know, I think the American consuming culture was consuming bigger and better things. They were consuming larger portions on, on the plate. They were consuming larger cars. They were consuming, you know, we went through an era in New York City dining where everything was big. You know, I had, dinner, like everything was tall. Dishes right. were tall. There was foam. They were, right. Like you, you, you were making a statement. And, um, and I think I think Napa Valley Cabernet made that statement. And what's happening now is you see those families, you see those winemakers over time who own these properties have, have kind of went through that trend and net phase, and now they're taking a step back and thinking about what inspires them, what got them there in the first place, and how to make the wines that are respectful for their terroir and what they like to drink. And I think we're starting to see a lot of people in the Napa Valley. Um, some people never changed. Kathy Corison, perfect example, never changed.
2: But she started in a way that she started... was her conviction and is popular now or yeah and it, and it took and it took a long time for she, Kathy to get popular right. she didn't get 25 the props minutes. when yeah. she was doing it and, <clears> 25
3: vintages of uh right. of, of course and I mean it's a long but time going
2: tell everyone what those things are I mean when you talk about the um benefit of you know great sunshine and you know having the opportunity to grow great fruit you now take that fruit and what do you do you over extract it you jack the alcohol and you oak it is that was
3: that a problem it, it I, I think what happens is when you have when you have a lot of great sunshine you have ripe fruit and ripe fruit means um, increased sugars and increased sugars are gonna mean increased alcohol potential and increased alcohol potential is gonna mean higher extraction of not only color and tannin but also extraction of oak influence when you have alcohol being that solvent it's gonna with, withdraw everything into it um, so that that was you know it was it was a, a spiral of just bigger and bigger and bigger and more extracted and and guess what those wines are delicious
2: I mean right. you know I mean a style and type of wine there's I mean was there a Parkerization at that time you know I, where I think I think I think he loved them and he was respected and people followed him oh I'm sure but but they, Bob was
3: never um, never embarrassed to tell you what he liked and what he enjoyed right. and if you didn't like what he uh, the, the words he was writing and the wines he was supporting, then you found someone else who might. Or you found you went to Stephen Tanzer, and if you didn't enjoy Stephen Tanzer, you went to Jim Lowby. You, you had your opportunity and your choice to kind of to be guided down the path of wine, or hopefully you used your own palate. And that's right. I think the biggest part of this. And I think what's happening in the, the change now is we're starting to see more people walk coming out of this uh, uh, this era, this golden age and starting to settle down with their own confidence and with their own palate, and starting to make the wines that they feel are, that then got them there in the first place. The you know We're all inspired by the great wines of Europe. I mean, they've been doing it a lot longer than we have, right. and uh, and we, we need
2: benchmarks, so. Is that a shift in the consumer? You know, I'm more of a baby boomer than you. You know, I cut my teeth in Napa Caps, you know, now I'm auctioning them all to get <laughs> Beaujolais and you know Italian wines and all that. Um, has there been a shift in the that that trophy collector? You know, is he still important? But new guys are coming in and of they course. want a different style.
3: Of course, is we're, that
2: fueling it a little? Of
3: course. And well, you have to remember too, we're two hours from Silicon Valley, um, so we are very close to the heart of of the new money America, and I think that's a we see that you know. I think it's a little blown out of proportion when we think every you know twenty something millennial is a million a Twitter millionaire and so right. forth and so on. But um, we do see. I've I've noticed this all the time, and you have to remember, I've, I've, I'm on the Larkmead property almost six or seven days a week when I'm when I'm home in Napa Valley, and I see the faces who come through the door, and I see. You know, from 2006, 2007, when I started there to now, this current day, I see the faces get younger and younger and younger, and I'm excited about that. And right. it's, it's 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 they may not be buying the wines today, but they're exploring the Napa Valley and having the hospitality experience, having that um, emotional connection to what what the wine industry has created, and you know in the Napa Valley and Sonoma County and I think that that is um that's something that you know we're going to we're going to hold on to for a very long time and I think those visitors are going to hold on to for a very long time as they right. kind of go down
2: their own path you said the journey of wine I think is your tagline here the journey to great wine yep um so let's talk about Larkmead a little you know we'll take the segue from talking about cab to talking about Larkmead which really is you and Larkmead are cab specialists um the property is very interesting. I think you're lucky to be there. Tell everyone why the property is so special.
3: There are two, two, two to three reasons why I would consider Larkman incredibly special. One is um, its location in the valley. So it's quote-unquote tewar. Um, it is a, a unique family-held, three contiguous vineyards, entire valley floor spread between Silverado Trail and Highway 29 um, of unique soil diversity and that is something that we don't see in the rest of the Napa Valley other other as you get down to the wider parts of the Napa Valley down into St. Helena, Rutherford, Oakville, etc. as you go south they tend to be a little bit more homogenized swaths of land. Lark meat is completely diverse within its, uh, its own right and it's cut in half by a river, the Napa River. So as any good winemaker is going to tell you or any good vigneron is going to tell you, the, the land is number one. And uh, I, I'd be remiss to say it wasn't. Um, so
2: it's large, contiguous, and diverse. And diverse. So that's number Which, three. like you said, I mean, there's a swath on the yeah. floor, and that's it. Rutherford dust. See you later. Yeah. This is, you know, a lot more diverse, right?
3: That is is absolutely true, and um, and then two is is you know we have a a family who's owned Larkmead since 1948. Um, The second generation daughter, Kate Salari Baker, her and her husband Cam Baker, decided in 1992 when they took over Larkmead that they were going to. Give it a go. They were gonna, they were gonna replant the vineyard, which was planted to over sixty acres of uh, white grapes at the time, Oof. to red grape varieties during this era of. Well, you kind of like white grapes, but <laughs> separate story. Go ahead. <laughs> no, but we had great, we had great, we had great collaborators and partners. Go we ahead. were selling all of our whites. <laughs> Don't to, get to, off to, subject. And to, <laughs> Stay uh, on topic. <laughs> But they, they, they decided to replant the entire vineyard to a mix of red grape varieties with, the, with Bordeaux varieties being a focus. And, and as we've learned over the years, you know, not only for supply and demand issues, Cabernet Sauvignon does very well in the Napa Valley, especially the, the hotter, warmer, drier part of the north of Napa Valley where Larkmead's located. So, so you have this great piece of land and you have this family who desi- decides to actually you know, kind of be stewards of that place and decides to kind of you know, give it a go. And change, you know, take their former careers as a, as a as a lawyer and a painter, and really kind of say, we we're, we're gonna we're gonna test this out." Um, and I think that unwavering kind of a commitment to figuring it out from from a second generation family in Napa Valley has been one of the special reasons. So they why had Larkin Andy insisted. at
2: their side, which was the right guy. Yeah. Then they paired you with Andy, or yep. Andy brought you along, so yep. they had a, a good team in that sense. Um, So now you're making the wines. um, As we talked about earlier about style, um, you know, the grapes in Napa can take advantage of the heat and the sunshine, high sugar. But what's your approach to the wines there? You make multiple bottlings, but you're not necessarily going out there making these big bombers.
3: No, and it's, um, you know, I think... I think we, we definitely are in the category of Napa Valley style. When Larkmead started making wine in the late 90s, 1997 was the first commercial vintage. Um, this is a property that is, uh, that is 124 years old as an estate, as a vineyard, um, but it's only really modern winemaking since 1997. So we're still kind of young to the game. Um so we've we've kind of went through the ebbs and flows of, you know, the big flavor era, the high impact era, you know, in the early two thousands, and then the big flavor in the late two thousands. And then, you know, as I kind of, you know, cut you know, had confidence in myself and confidence in, you know, working with a viticultural team that was, you know, as committed and as smarter than the rest, I said, you know, we, we really need to be able to express what this vineyard does best. If this vineyard is large and it's contiguous and it is diverse. We should be respectful of that and not try to homogenize style to be a Napa Valley wine, but to to be important to understand why we're diverse and how we can express that in a glass. And a lot of that is, you know, I I use this example over and over again because it's a really good one. But uh, if you play music at the highest volume the noise, the music, the listening gets distorted. And you start to kind of get a little bit of a fuzziness to it and a distortion that that removes a lot of the nuance to the uh, to the, the song. That was just a simple thing about, you asked about it earlier, about what makes a big wine. And so you remove a little bit of the alcohol, like you remove a little bit of the volume on a record player, and you're going to remove a little bit of that extraction. So you're not going to have this big of fruit extraction, you're not gonna have as big as color extraction or tannin or oak extraction. And you're not gonna be masking what lies underneath. Well guess what? If what lies underneath is shit, then you got shit. Dead. Then you better you better put the volume up really loud. Right. But if you can't if, if you're not a good guitarist, you better yeah. play as loud as you possibly right. can. Um, but for me, Larkmead is great. Like the, the soils, the, the the ground, the team that farms that vineyard is great. And it's an opportunity now to kind of, you know, lower the volume, lower a little bit of the alcohol and see how good this is. And I've been, I've been shocked to see, you know, the changes and, uh, as you get into the, the current vintages, the 16s, the 17s, the 18s, how you, you remove a, 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 a slight percentage point of alcohol and, and how the wine still remains powerful, but much more interesting. And, it's just the nature of the land. And, uh, and that's right. that's what I'm trying to figure out. And I bet you're still, still make figuring it out. Yeah. Right. I'll, I'll, if I go too low on the volume, you're not going to be able to hear the nuances either. So I need to figure out what the right balance is.
2: Well, the interesting thing is before we take a break, I'll ask you this one question. Then when we come back, a few more questions, I'll subject you to our wine list and we'll taste some of the uh, lark meat. You're not one of those guys, and we talked about it a little, UC Davis, you know, winemaking a million years. And, you know, everything you're saying is, you know, right and sensible, and you're learning on the job, you've discovered things, you've figured out things and all that. But your background, hardcore, is not as a winemaker. So how do you figure all this shit out? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
3: I'm a wine drinker. Um, I've always been a wine drinker. What right? does
2: that mean? So you know what you want I, or you can identify?
3: I have a hard time explaining this to people. Um, I always say the wine is made in my head, in my heart, and my palate. The actual physical act of growing grapes, fermenting grape juice, it, taking it off its must, putting it into barrel, aging it, and putting it under cork in a bottle is purely manufacturing. I don't want to break anyone's romantic view of what the wine (laughs) process is, but the romantic view of wine is what's in our head and hearts and palate. Things that things that we aspire to, things that we love, things that we enjoy tasting, we find delicious, that's what winemaking is to me and it will always be. It's not in a textbook, it's not in a fermentation vessel, it's not in a oak barrel all of those components are part of the production process that are the colors the pencils the you know the, the 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 pens that that paint the picture and that i think is as a if you drink enough and i'm not saying this in a derogatory way if you drink enough around the world and you find out what you're looking for and what you like and you're good at being able to replicate you're going to be able to kind of see how weather, how fermentation, how oak influences the finished product, and
2: hopefully be able to shape it to your vision and to your, what's in your head and heart and palate. So to me, that sounds easier said than done, but the doing you're saying is not that hard. You just really have to know and have the conviction of what you want to do and what you like, right? I mean, you have people around you to help you, and the process is the process to some extent, yeah. right?
3: Every bottle of wine in this world is delicious, to someone. Um, I can find positives and negatives in every bottle of wine. The negatives I find in any bottle of wine are going to be my own subjective approach of being a wine stop. Um, But it's delicious to everyone. I mean, I'm not going to tell any one person, any maker of wine, that they didn't make a delicious wine. That What they made is what they believed was the best representation of what they put under cork. And guess what? Everyone is making delicious wines in California, in France, in Italy. They're all over the place. You can't go wrong. It's just what you're comfortable
2: with as a drinker and what you're comfortable with in your wallet. I agree. Um, Dan, we're going to take a break. We're talking to Dan Petroski. Dan is the uh, winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards and Massacon, his own project. Um, When we come back, I want to talk to him about a few other things about his wine in Napa and then we'll subject them to our wine list, and we'll taste a little Larkmead. You're listening to The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. <music>
1: Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise and affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Schwa was named world champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com.
2: All right, we're back with my guest, Dan Petrosky. Jan- Dan is the... Uh winemaker at Larkmead in Napa Valley and his own project, Massacon. Um, I wanted to get your take on this. Um, sustainable, organic, biodynamic practices in the field in the cellar, somewhat essential to our future. Uh, my observations, and correct me if I'm wrong, is Napa is not the best practitioner of those things. Um, what are you doing? What do you see? What should we do? I mean, I know you take a holistic approach. You have a Napa Green rating which you'll explain. But tell me because you go to the Loire, you know, Italy. It's the opposite.
3: Yeah, actually uh, Sam, that's uh, not factually correct. <laughs> so so correct. I'm me. gonna fact I'm gonna fact check you on I, that. And one. that's why I brought it uh, <laughs> So um the There's only about 6% of the world's vineyards that are organically farmed. Uh, In Napa Valley, we're above average. We're about 9%. Okay. So that's first and
2: foremost. Um, But let me challenge you, but that's a declaration. There are people that practice that don't declare. Sure, just like Larkmead. Larkmead practices. We've been
3: organically farming since 2015, but we do not declare. We do not put ourselves through the certification process. Uh, Harlan. Uh, probably one of the most famous wineries in in, wine. in the world um, same same situation so we have that same scale on both sides uh, I agree with you hundred uh, percent a lot of the European wineries that don't declare are are also at the same. Same situation where they're saying I live on this property, I farm this property myself. Uh, the health and wellness benefits are uh, in organic farming and sustainable agriculture, of course. But but on paper, we can only go with what we what we know factually. Unfortunately, right. Um, but that but that doesn't mean we're you know the people who don't farm organically are bad people. Um, the wine the wines are still delicious. I think the wines are still healthy. A lot of wines that are made quote unquote unnaturally um, are still grapes, water, sugar. Um, yeah, I'm not alcohol. implying <laughs> that. I'm just, <laughs> and and there's still a, a, a tremendous amount of deliciousness in those wines, and and just because they're you know you know I, at the end of the day, a lot of the a lot of the vineyards in this world that we drink wine from are not owned by families and farmed by fam- families and made by that family. Um, they're grapes purchased from farmers, and farmers can you can tell them how to farm, but
2: we can't tell them, you know, we have to pay for it. Um, right, and so. So wait, go back to 2015. Yeah, uh, obviously there was a compulsion. Yeah, at that time or leading up to it. Yeah, that you made the changes. You know why and what did you do?
3: Yeah, no, I just think that you know there's, the, you know the old saying you can't teach an old org new tricks. But you have this situation where people are doing what, what people around them are doing, and, uh, and so you just continue to do your practice that, um, has been brought to you by, you know, the, the farming companies you've worked with or the, the vineyard management teams that you have in house, it's what they know what they had to do best. And you have to make a change. And when you make that change, sometimes it's pretty drastic and pretty scary. And you go from having to do weed control with one passive roundup to having to do weed control five or six times right. in the field that comes with an expense associated with it. It comes in, it comes also with that conversation about oh is that carbon friendly to be doing five tractor passes as opposed to one (laughs) um you know better living through science i agree with that statement when you're uh, when you're on your deathbed but can we sustainably live um, healthier lives longer and i think that was the bigger question uh when larkby decided to think about organic farming we thought we started to think about vine age and health of soil and how it will translate to Older, healthier vines. Older, healthier vines over a course of time are going to be more financially efficient, so thinking of it as a business.
2: Right. Um, And it's such a large property, and and it's so diverse, but still. Um, You know, you're a practitioner of many (laughs) varietals, but at Larkmead, you know, it's um, fairly singular. I, I guess two questions. Do you see Napa spreading out from Cabernet Sauvignon um, or it's happening already. And what about Larkmead? Sure. I know from my research, there's a little, I think was Tokai or Rebola. you know. Yeah, we... um, Where's, is that noble grape spreading out a little or... Yes. Um, I
3: do think that... um, you know, we've, we've, it's hard to say you're, you're a monoculture and, uh, when you're only 110 acres, um, you can be a monoculture on a 110 acre footprint, but at the same time, I don't think anyone's going to fault you for, um, for having 110 acres of great Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, no. and when I, you know, as a winemaker, I've decided in the last Uh, five years to eliminate secondary and tertiary varieties uh, in the Bordeaux family, like Petit Verdot and Malbec from the wines we're making. Um, and I did that over time, slowly over time. Um, we started to remove Petit Verdot and Malbec. We removed in 2015. Why? because didn't like the blend. Um, I, I Malbec and Petit Verdot were like salt and pepper. It was an opportunity for us to kind of uh, to, to kind of fill in some gaps in, in the painting and holes in the painting if we needed to uh, with different flavor profiles that were in the same family. And I said, well, we want to be able to make great wines. You want to make a great painting with one grape variety, Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot or Cabernet Franc. And let's blend those together as opposed to having four or five varieties that we work with. So we've actually, we have less Petit Frido and Malbec planted on the site than we did when I started 13 years ago, 14 years ago. And we now only work with three grape varieties because they are they are the three great,
2: grape varieties of Cabrelo, the red family. And Cabernet Franc. And you said to be recognized as one of the great winemakers of the world, you have to work with one of the noble varieties. And fortunately for you, we all agree, Kapsov is one of them. That's true. And Larkmead certainly is deeply focused, you know, on that. And like you said, you just made tweaks. You got rid of Malbec and Petite Verdot and all of that. You still believe
3: that? Of course. Um, it, the great winemakers of the world are going to be the winemakers who succeed phenomenally well and are popular brand perception and uh, with grapes like Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot, Um Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, and I can tell you know a uh, half a dozen great, you know, Loire Valley pro- producers ranking Sauvignon Blanc. I can tell dozens of Pinot producers, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of Cabernet producers. Um, but that's where, you know, that's that's the big leagues. I mean, let's right. not kid ourselves. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's it's except the big for leagues. Burgundy. I yeah. mean, you know, Burgundy has been hot for the
2: last ten years, but Bordeaux ruled in Napa you know I yeah, no, I'm but I'm,
3: of, I'm putting burgundy in the, in in the big yeah, leagues. Um I you agree. know it's like we're we're the majors and and uh when you start talking about you know secondary tertiary places of this world and regions and and varieties you never heard of and they're hard to yeah they're fun for exploration they're fun for uh for tasting and having a good time but at the end of the day they're still double and triple a.
2: So quickly you have limited and not negative in the word limited, but at Larkmead, you have limited offerings. I mean, you, you have literally less than a half a dozen skews of red, right? I, I mean, let's talk about them. We're going to taste in a few minutes, you know, the Cabernet, and then you have some named bottlings. Just take me through them quickly.
3: Sure. No, and I, I think that's actually a very, uh, very interesting question because... When you think about what we're doing, we're doing, we're making six wines at, at uh, a singular property because we're exploiting the diversity that's on the land. But that's very that's the antithesis of the Napa Valley, you know, desire to be this chateau model of Bordeaux, where you have a singular great wine. And then the Napa right. Valley was built on singular great wines like Harlan, as you mentioned earlier, and Dominus, Schaefer, and Opus One, that. and right. you know Spotswood, and these these are singular wines from a singular estate. Um, And Larkmead chose, we chose recently to explore six wines from a singular estate with six different expressions of the, of the land and the grape varieties that make it up. And I think that is actually a little bit, uh, um, that's challenging, you know, when, when. A drinker of, of Cabernet Sauvignon thinks of a singular great wine, and now they have to make a choice at Larkmead, and so that's why we succeed really well with having you know our hospitality experience is over an hour and a half. But I and think
2: with that property, you're pushed to that challenge. It is, and and you, you know, you know, why not take advantage yeah. and expand and you know express the terroirs of the property, right? And I wouldn't look. I'm uh, I'm not saying I'm a great
3: winemaker, but I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't put a bottle. Wine in a bottle for a marketing reason. If it wasn't a complete wine, from my perspective, I would not bottle it. Um, that's just unacceptable. And from my perspective as a wine drinker um, and as a maker. So, uh, you know, we're, we have this ability to do exactly what you said, is to, to exploit. Right. And um, and that is truly uh, that is a blessing, and it gives me an opportunity Wh- to, to do things that a lot of other people Which for Napa aren't. is
2: a little unique because of the names we discussed. You mm-hmm. know, the Harlins make their wines from that property in Spotswood. I yeah. mean, it, it's a very cool thing. Um, we're going to taste the lark meat, and we'll talk a little more about it. But I can't let you leave here without subjecting you to... Um, our wine list, and we're always very curious about our guests' preferences and tastes. So I'm going to shoot five questions at you. Don't obsess on them, <laughs> um, and just give me your best answers. So the first question is, what are you drinking now? Not what's not the beer and the lark mead, but what's on your table, what's in your fridge, what are you obsessing on?
3: Uh, at the, right at this moment, it's, uh, champagne is always in the refrigerator. Uh, okay. Beer is always in the refrigerator. Do you have a favor,
2: too, on champagne? <laughs> oh, where you
3: move around a I, little? I have a very expensive <laughs> champagne uh, budget and uh, have it, unfortunately. Um, Solos? No, no. I have uh, a little bit more classic styles. Um, I really do like uh, Claude Guise if when I can get my hands on it. Um, but uh, Cedric Bouchard, um, you know, is kind of a, a you know someone I've been following since 2006, and he's.
2: He's not gone out of fashion for me, so I drink a lot of those wines. Why do you like champagne? I mean, I love it. I I go to dinner with my friends. They bring wine. I always bring champagne. It's a great opener. It's great with food. It's celebratory. I mean, you agree with me? What other reasons? Oh, it's it's, one of the great wines. That It's a
3: great wine, but I think it actually, you know, not to get into the psychology of it so much, but... What I do think is that we're a beer-consuming culture, and beer is about carbonation and freshness and low alcohol. Champagne is about carbonation and freshness and low alcohol. Um, it's a starter. Beer has always been the afterwork. Good work, point. After I mean work, that comparatif. word "starter"
2: is a great. Yeah. You know, I like starter better than celebratory. Um, anything else? So you said beer, champagne. Anything on the wine front? Uh, oh, champagne is wine. <laughs> no, I know, but I meant uh, non-sparkling. Oh no!
3: It's uh, wine. Wine for me is like I've. Uh, I mean, I'm getting back into Bordeaux in a heavy way because I, uh, I started my you know, drinking Bordeaux in the late 90s that in way. New York City and early 2000s. And, um, and I've started to realize how beautiful those expressions are. And I'm um, now getting back to a point where I can spend some more time as a, as a producer thinking about those wines and not just a wine consumer.
2: Nice. Um, this is the goofiest question of the bunch, but does Dan Petrosky have a favorite wine and food pairing? And we have a rule on the show. You can't say champagne and oysters. <laughs> champagne <laughs> and popcorn? Um, the, you champagne. know what? Champagne. You're not the first guy who said that, and that's a good one. Champagne fried chicken, champagne yeah. pizza. So champagne popcorn is a good yeah. one. <laughs> Give me one more.
3: I am, I actually am I'm huge on drinking white wine with uh, dishes that you're not supposed to drink white wine with, whether it be you know lamb or venison or... Um, but or we're not meats. throwing caution of the wind. We're picking specific
2: whites to go with a lamb, right? Oh,
3: I mean, I, you, you mentioned Tocai Filano as a grape variety, a heritage Italian grape variety. It's planted great in a with lamb? It's great with, uh, you know, you got to remember that's a northeast Italian grape, and it's a right. region that's very Germanic, so it's great with heavier, richer dishes.
2: Cool. All right, so those that's a good answer. Tell me your favorite wine, restaurant, and or bar. And I'm looking for places that do it well, have a good selection, have a good wine knowledge, that are passionate. You can go anywhere. You can go to New York. You can go Napa. You can go in the world, but and I don't want you to be exclusive. Like oh, I left this guy out or whatever. But just you know, drop well, a couple of things that people that
3: are doing it well. Eating and drinking is uh, is the one thing I'd love to do, and uh, <laughs> um, I, I, we're we're blessed in Napa Valley to have a tremendous um, uh, resource of great wine. Uh, drinking restaurants, and um, if I named one, I'd have to name them all. But uh, since we're sitting in here in New York, I'm going to focus on New York for a second. That'd be good. And, um, uh, I am. I started my career in Italy, and my palate's always been in a love of Italian wines. And Maialino is just hands down one of the uh, one of the one of the you know it, it 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 gets me really warm and excited when I when I flip through the pages of that wine list. I just want and to a drink bowl everything. load of champagne too. Champagne and and Nebbiolo. I just want I want to be around it all more. day. <laughs> um, Oh, and, and then um, you know, it's funny. I grew up in uh, you know as an Italian American in Brooklyn, and uh, we went to uh, we went to the uh, Far Bay Ridge, to Bentonhurst area to a, an old restaurant called Tommaso's, and that restaurant has is known in kind of this. I just let the cat out of the bag. <laughs> it's got an amazing wine list uh, from the last uh, you know thirty plus years of uh, collecting, and really, and uh, you let the great, cat out of the bag. A great red sauce joint and
2: uh, a wine list that is that is priced effectively. That's a good one. Um, Do you have a favorite all-time wine? And I realized through the years we've been doing this that sometimes it's not just one, and it's definitely not the rarest or the most expensive. It could be experiential. But when you think about a wine that you loved or is important to you, does anything come to mind? Uh, there's many wines that, I, that I, I have a Desert Island wine. I have the
3: wine that got me into wine. I have the wine that ex- right. inspires me. All
2: right, so I want all three. Give me the Desert Island wine. Giuseppe uh, Mascarello, Man Privato. Okay, love that. Give me the, what did you say, inspires you? Obrion. Obrion, okay, there's your cab. And what was the last category you were throwing in? The, uh, the wine that got me into wine was Sean Thackeray's Pleiades. I remember reading that story' it's
3: a, it's a blend, wine right? about storage. seven grapes, seven sisters, yep, seven yep, grapes. Yep, yep. Yep. Uh, had it at La Bernadette,
2: speaking of New York City. That's funny that they yep. had it. Um, still an interesting wine. All right, maybe a little tougher for you, but we ask everyone best wine around 15 bucks, 15, 20 bucks retail. A red and a white. You can go category like Muscadet. You can go with a maker. You can go with a varietal or whatever. What comes to your mind? And my setup's always been: my kids are in their twenties. They can't bring a crappy eight-dollar wine to a party, and they can't afford forty. So what are they grabbing for twenty? No, I've
3: uh, you know, I'm sorry, I'm dating myself on this one, but uh, I don't know what their current price points are. But I, on both white and red, I used to always tell my sisters uh, who asked me about wine when I lived in California and my mother who asked me about wine when they were going shopping for dinner or having an event, I said, buy La Crema. La Crema is a large winery making uh, making wine like a small winery. That's a
2: good answer. Yeah. Good maker, good price point, good reputation. Yeah. So, La Crema, Pinot, and Chardonnay? Pinot and Chardonnay. I mean, okay, they, so does that answer both questions? That is, I mean, I, that's, my, right. Listen, that's
3: my go to $20 wine. I'm, again, I, Listen forgive to me. me. You might get a comment that it actually nah, goes wines nah, nah, now nah, $24 a bottle. For. You know, know, you got the credit <laughs> to throw that out yeah. there, and
2: I think it's a great answer. Yeah. So, you know, we, we didn't have to spend much time on that. All right, Dan, we got to wrap up. But before we wrap up, every week we taste a different wine on air. Um, I try to get my guests to bring in wine. Um, Obviously, for our weekly wine sip this week, I asked Dan to bring in a a Larkmead Cabernet Sauvignon. It's a 2016. I think it's their, you know, regular Cabernet. Just give me a little quick background on this, and then we're going to evaluate it and taste it. Oh, sure. No, this is a If
3: This is the wine that if you are, if you've ever come across Larkmead, it's probably this wine. It is the wine that we make the most of it. It's almost 30% of their entire production. It is a blend of Cabernet Sauvignon grapes grown on the entire three contiguous vineyard estate. Um, it also has a little bit of, um, in this particular vintage, a little bit of uh, Petit Verdot in there as well. Again, we didn't stop using that until 2016. It's the wine that we have to, as Andy Smith told me, we have to make it our best wine every year because it is our largest production wine. It is the wine that you'll have at a restaurant in New York. It's the touch point for the vineyard
2: to the most people
3: yeah and and this uh, the, the reason why these wines are so special to me it's 2015 cabernet 2016 cabernet which we're drinking today they're so special to me is because a lot of what goes into this uh this finished wine this bottle are grapes that were grown during the time i've been at Larkmead. so it's a very young uh a young wine with regards to the vine age and uh but at the same time it, it shows its pedigree of land and and uh and quality um, of, of grape growing on that land for the last 120 plus years All right,
2: so let's give it a sniff and then we're gonna throw it over the tongue but first color that classic deep red but there's some a little translucent in there it's not that inky dark right no it says 2016
3: is a vintage a little bit um a little higher than average yields a little Cooler than average temperatures, uh, which made the wines a little less darker and, and inkier. As and you I can see describe.
2: that beautiful color, though. All right, I need you to do this because I suck at it. W- what's our descriptors on the nose? <laughs> Sam, I suck at it too. <laughs> Tell me what you get. Is it classic? Uh, I mean, are, are we looking at dark fruits? Are we looking at. No, l- larkmead is larkmead is known in my eyes for for being very floral. Um, okay, so the aromatics lean towards
3: floral. Lean towards floral. They lean. Closer to red and blue fruits than to blue and black fruits, um, right? So when you think of a red and blue fruit, you go everything Cherry. from cherries to raspberries to blueberries, as opposed to blackberries and 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 darker plum notes, and um, so yeah. And then and I also love that Larkmead has a you know has some such great diversity of soil that causes a lot of stress, and that stress causes a little bit of a, um, a kind of
2: secondary and tertiary notes of herbaceousness. All right, so. Let's throw it over the tongue and talk about two things, mouthfeel, and then I want to see what you get on the palate if it, you know, equates to the uh, nose. So here we go over the tongue. So I'll go first. It's not this big, unctuous, glycerin-y wine that you get from Napa. What is it, a medium
3: palate? Give me your yeah. I, I don't. I have a lot of great sommelier friends who can speak to the mediums, medium plus uh, weight, medium mind, right. but, um But uh, for me, this wine, the signature lark meat is about freshness. It's about a wine that, to your point, it's not. Uh, it's not over the top, but it's a viscosity and richness and weight. It doesn't die on the palate. It's more, it's it's more Muhammad Ali than it is George Foreman. They're both heavyweights, but uh, Ali floats like a butterfly. Lark Meets has always been ethereal, and it has always, always kind of left the palate in a retro. So let's way. talk
2: about the palate. What do we get on the palate? Does the nose transfer to the palate? The Blue and red fruits. This is a this is a perfect
3: example of the nose carrying over through to the palate. Um, you do have a lot of kind of dusty red uh, red cherry on the tannins and um, kind of a pillbox character to the you know the tannins, and it's just you know all those kind of mid palate core mid palate
2: you know red and blue fruit. What's the great, uh, our buddy Kirk Sutherland's coming in to share a glass with us. What are the great pairings for a wine like this? I love this
3: because it's not just a steak and Cabernet kind of wine. I think this is a wine that has uh, the ability to kind of uh, be versatile on a table because of its agility and nimbleness. What so, else? So you can have it with lamb. You can have it with chicken. You can have it with, uh, um, I, I wouldn't recommend it with fish. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't recommend a lot of red wine with fish.
2: All right. Um, do you are you happy with this wine 16 and the way it came out i mean this is I, I, this wasn't a tough year this was a good wine good year
3: it was a it was a it was a uh, a great year i'm so happy with the the quality of this wine i really feel this is where i was the first manager i was able to you and i had been making the wine since for since 2012-13 um this
2: is the the first
3: manager i feel that the wines are just truly uh, really my stamp
2: all right, so that is the 2016 Lark Mead Cabernet Sauvignon. Our buddy Kirk Sutherland, who is the wine director at Roberta's, just walked in, and a friend of Dan's, and he's going to taste and tell us what he thinks. Um, but I got to wrap up the show. You got here late, Kirk. Um, if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at com. Follow us on Facebook at the Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and the hashtag the Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at ben Ruby. I know it's confusing, but pay attention. Um, also subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. I will post Dan's wine list on our social media. I will post Dan's... Uh, weekly wine sip. I'll give you more information on the wine. Um, and Dan, where can we find more uh, info on Larkmead? Just go to the website. Go, go to the website and come visit. I think You'll right. learn good hospitality. Learn the most when you come see us. Um, and what about you? If people want to know what Dan's eating and drinking and what he wears, uh, your personal <laughs> no, no no selfies. I just have a. a a
3: pretty lame bottle shot Instagram account that I posted and that's once Dan and once a Dan Petroski, right? <laughs> yeah, Dan Patrosky. All right,
2: and I just want to say that Dan is beyond you know the winemaker at uh, Larkmead. Dan has his own project called Massican, and he's very focused on Northern Italian white wines, and he's doing some great stuff there. And that's another show on its own. Dan also is obsessed with anything liquid, so he's screwing around with beer he's screwing around with gin he would like to do something with water so down the road we'll sit down and you know talk to everybody uh about that fair enough dan that's true i I love all right before we go off kirk can you just take a sniff and a sip and this is not the traditional roberta's wine but give me your take on this
3: benchmark napa cabernet really.
2: but not over the top right yeah this yeah. is, this is the, the kind of napa cabernet that should be more celebrated and sought after i agree with you we on that
3: meat on the the list over at bunka because it's something that we know people want to to have with their meals but we want something that has a bit more elegance and won't overpower right. food and will actually complement things and
2: I find the the Larkney wines to be. That's that's excellent. a great that's a great way to put it. And Dan, that's why we had you on the show because you're doing some great things out there. I want to thank our guest Dan Petrosky. I want to thank Kirk Sutherland for running in here. Thank you to our engineer Amanda and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to the Grape Nation.